Welcome to Immigrants' Journeys. Imagine leaving your home country to settle in a foreign land. What would that feel like? How would you make the transition and how might that experience change you? The guests on this show share their perspectives and opinions related to their immigrant journeys. Listen to find out what challenges they overcame and how they made the transition. In this episode, John shares many stories and experiences related to his immigrant journey. Growing up in the United States, John was heavily influenced by his grandmother. She immigrated to the United States from Sicily in 1907. Her continued travels and related stories fascinated John and planted the seed that later in life turned into wanderlust, the deep desire to travel, wander, and just experience different ways of life. John's expatriation came about unexpectedly. As a young professional, he was offered or told to work in Hong Kong. After a short period of time there, John and his management realized that the assignment would not be short-term. After spending some time in Hong Kong, he was offered a job in Tokyo, Japan. He came back and forth between the U.S. and Japan, and eventually, being married and having two kids, immigrated to Japan and settled there for nearly 13 years. During our conversation, John talks about the popularity of EDM music in Asia, or electronic dance music. He also talks about his exposure to traditional Japanese folk music when he discovers Banana Fish, a one-room DJ music hangout in Tokyo. I wanted to start this episode with something a little bit more traditional, so I'm about to play some traditional koto music performed by Izumi Kai Original Instrumental Group, Source Essential World Masters. I hope you enjoy it. To learn more about this show, visit www.immigrantsjourneys.fm. Now, let's listen to John's Immigrant Journey. I start my conversation with John by asking him for some common greetings in Japanese. A greeting depends what time of day it is. It's Ohio gozaimasu, or during the mornings, it's konnichiwa in the middle of the day, and it's konbawa at night. All right. Ohio gozaimasu, John. Or you just say Ohio. Just how much Japanese did John pick up? I wouldn't say I'm very fluent at all. When I was living there, it was much, much easier, obviously, and you use it every day. I got pretty conversant in sort of business and daily life, and that's all verbal, right? It takes years of practice to actually be able to read and write it for sure. So they share, they have two alphabets, but they also share about, well, they share kanji, like most of the folks in Asia, and to read, you know, the... Nihon, the Nihon Shimbun, which is their big paper, you need to understand almost 4,500. Now, my kids, they're much better. I'm always curious what prompts someone to leave their homeland. So I asked John why he left the U.S. and immigrated to Japan. I think there's a couple things. The first answer was it was forced upon me. <laughs> I had been living in Hong Kong, and as you know, I spent a lot of my time as a consultant, and one of those classic sort of consulting things, they're like, hey, you're moving to Tokyo, and I thought, oh, okay. And so that was the initial sort of reason for going to Japan, and I guess I'm a sucker or a glutton for punishments because I ended up going there twice. The second thing is, and you know, I was thinking about this a lot. There's two pivotal moments kind of in my life, which influenced both my desire to get overseas and which indirectly got me there. The first one I would say is my grandmother. My grandmother was an Italian immigrant from Sicily who came over in steerage class from Sicily in, in 1907, but she was a big internationalist. And as a kid, I didn't understand what the, what the heck that was. Right. But I knew that she was coming back from places like Morocco with, you know, Fez hats and uh, Lederhosen from Germany or whatever the case might be. And that just instilled in me a desire to go out to see the world. And then the second thing, which I still remember clear as day, even to this day, was the first flight I ever took. I was fortunate enough to be able to travel, which a lot of people aren't, right? And uh, we went to Bermuda, simple Bermuda, English speaking, relatively basic. 
And I remember being struck the first time. It was my first plane ride. Like, wow, look at these clouds. And uh, I'm going somewhere different and foreign. But most importantly, I got off the plane and people spoke differently. Things like as simple as a corkscrew is different, right? Whatever the case might be. And that just instilled in me those two things. Hey, you got to go out and see the world. So initially, (laughs) I had no choice. But historically, I knew that was going to be my life. Started studying French in sixth grade. I have studied overseas. And frankly, both undergraduate and graduate were focused on international. So international studies at the undergrad level and an international MBA at the graduate. How old were you when you were on that first plane trip? I, it's funny. I talked to my mother about this the other day. It was 1976. I was seven years old. I have young kids that have been nagging me to get on their planes for years, and I dread taking them through the TSA process and all the waiting and being in airports. So what do you think, John? Yeah, no, but I would also say what we did is it's for work. And as you know, I traveled a lot of overseas, overseas flights and you're in business class and it feels great. The only thing I would say is go. I know it's a pain in the neck to push a kid through an airport and deal with that, but I think you'll be doing them a tremendous service for the rest of their life, right? And I know that you believe that, but I'm a firm believer in it. Planning a trip, let alone moving overseas, takes a lot of preparation. So I was curious how John managed to do that. Well, the first time I was a bachelor, so there really was no decision. Although when I moved to Hong Kong, after about three months and I didn't know I was staying forever. I went to my boss at the time. I said, you know, I should go home. I need to break up with the girlfriend. I need to unload a, you know, two years in an apartment. But in all seriousness, I think the first time is that I did all this stuff was pretty, you know, you just had to do it. We did go back to Japan, as you know, a second time at that point we had, I think Lila was six or five and a half and Charlie was four, right? And so from a children's standpoint, we really did kind of have to get them prepared for, hey, people speak differently. You're going to feel a little uneasy. It's a long flight. And and we did that in the buildup, right? For Betsy and I, we had been there before. I'll be honest with you though, we had come back the first time. And although I knew I would be international for a lot of my life. We weren't sure if it was the right move, right? We had to analyze, hey, is it, what's our life now? Do we enjoy it? What's most important for our kids, right? How is this going to impact them professionally? Hey, are, the, are these the opportunities we really want to pursue? And then frankly, in the case of Japan, it is a completely different society, right? It has some wonderful, wonderful things, but It has some things that really are quite different from how we are here in the States. And we got to get ready for that. Great example is patience. In the States, no one has patience. Give me this. There's no interaction. There it takes forever (laughs) to do just about anything. And you really find yourself kind of, oh gosh. And then after you're there for a while, you really begin to appreciate it. So for us, I guess it wasn't a huge jump and it was mostly for our kids and trying to understand that and make sure that transition went smoothly and it wasn't something that was scary. It wasn't something that, you know, that they shouldn't be looking forward to. During our conversation, I recall the business trip I took with John. We traveled together from the United States to Manila, then the Philippines, and it was about 18 hours. It was the second longest flight I'd ever been on in my life. And I remember how difficult it was. So I asked John how he coped with long flights and how his children fared when they moved to Japan. I tell you, it's so easy now, right? As much as, and you probably do it now, your kids are young and I've given up the fight, but uh, those devices really help. (laughs) They just get on a device and they watch movies or my son's playing video games. And and over time, we did a lot of these. They thought it was wonderful. Oh my gosh, people are going to feed me and there's a big screen. I can watch a movie. And when they weren't doing that, they were staring at their own screen. So it's really easy. Now getting them, and I think this speaks to what you were talking about before, getting them through an airport and 
lugging luggage and we brought our dog back right the first time and it's like oh, wow wait a second where's where's spot right now and you kind of talk into your shoulder well he's he's in the bottom of the plane and and mostly it was really mostly about our dog i mean it gets long but it was relatively painless i guess at that time on that trip to manila the only kind of electronic i had was a laptop and i didn't want to work for an additional 18 hours yeah well, yeah, I mean, that was a while ago, but I mean, for us now, you can look at podcasts, you can read if you don't want to do work, there's tons of movies and stuff. I think people have it pretty good now. I remember when I was younger flying on planes and people were smoking in planes and you were jammed in there and the food was god awful. Despite all the stuff in the media, I think we have it so easy, so easy right now. Great. And that trip was the first time I actually saw someone doing yoga on an airplane. Well, I won't say I did yoga on a plane, but I am guilty of getting up on those long flights and certainly doing a heck of a lot of stretching. I think that's just a function of just getting old. <laughs> Full on yoga, I don't know. That that seems a little funky, but yeah, teach own. What were some of the key observations that you made regarding differences between the U.S. and Japan or Hong Kong? I think the best way to answer that is the first time I went, right? I'd been living in Hong Kong. I view Hong Kong as kind of Asia light, right? At least at that time, it was a very vibrant international city. Everyone spoke for the most part. The majority of people spoke English. And then I got transferred or they asked me to go sort of start the business in Japan. I'll tell you the first time I went there, I would literally was like, what the hell is going on here? I remember taking the bus in from the city and everything just looked so foreign. The landscape, the highway, you get in the taxi, they have little doilies and their taxis are completely beautiful. But I mean, the most jarring was just the lack of language. Like a lot of countries you go to and people can fudge through some English and, oh, you know, hey, how the heck do I get here? And they sort of mime it and there's enough English. Japan, there's not a lot of that, right? There's no signage in English. There is now around Tokyo, but back then um, there was none. So you couldn't get around. And unless there was a foreigner, it was very difficult to just get somebody to speak to you and be able to help you in whatever your daily challenges are. And there were every day, there was a different channel. How do you do X? How do you do Y? And that to me was the most, I think, jarring. And just physically, it just, it just is completely different from any city I'd ever been in my life, right? And it's also massive, right? Just a sprawling metropolis. And at least for me, you just always want to dive in, right? And you get there and you're kind of like, I don't, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where the diving board is because you can't read anything. You can't really speak to anyone. Everything is sort of, whoa, it's very different here. But then you get, like anything else, you get used to it. It takes time though, I'll tell you that especially Japan. Please remind me of the time frame again. Hong Kong was 97. Japan was 2000. What did your kids miss? Certainly with kids, you miss your friends. You miss the, the simplicity and ease of our life. They certainly felt what I just described in a super big way. They're still young. At that point, they were still just trying to figure out life for America, right? And here we are with their parents, like, this is going to be really good for you. It's a beautiful place. And they get there and they have the same thing. Wait, no one is speaking English and everyone has straight black hair. And why can't I just walk down the store and, and grab a grab whatever? The reality is, as they learn later, you actually can go down to the store. It is by far one of the safest places in the world. I think the second thing is just basic culture, right? The food. They have great food there and obviously of their own sort of styles, but then they have great food from all over the world. But we love Japanese food, right? And have. And so my kids are like, what, what is this stuff? Why are we always eating noodles? Why do they always give me a little bowl of soup? Whatever. And so food was, you know, food was part of it. Language was a big part of it. Living was completely different. We went from a house with a nice yard and their school. Actually, Betsy taught at their school and there 
the food didn't taste great. The schools, they had to drive 40 minutes to school. Let's talk about food. Is there any particular food that you miss from Japan? Every single one of them, except for the weird stuff. Actually, we had soba and homemade agadashi tofu last night and actually some panko shrimp. What I miss the most is the quality of food across the board, right? So we could go to a noodle shop down the street for five bucks and there's two old guys with the classic sort of Japanese headband on and they're stirring this massive pot of udon and it's the best soup you'll ever have in your life. At the high end, the food is spectacular, but more importantly, it's healthy, right? Our diet is horrendous here. I think for a lot of reasons. I remember the first time we came back and we, you start, okay, we're only going to order one entree and we'll split it. We're going to order one appetizers and we're going to split it and whatever. There, the portions make sense. It's all delicious. It's all fresh food, whether it's seafood, obviously, which is big, but vegetables, anything else. And the other thing is the service, which is... I think equally important service there in any industry, but particularly in food, will run circles around any service that you get here in the States. People take such great pride in everything they do, and that includes the busboy in the izakaya. That includes the college kid that's trying to make some cash while he's at school. They just think service is really important, treating people is really important, and I miss that tremendously. It's such a nice part of their culture. We eat anything, they eat anything. And it's funny, like my family and friends, like, Jesus, these kids eat everything. And, but it's something as simple as that, right? We came home and my sister's kids literally eat French fries, pizza, and hamburgers. <laughs> but funny enough, they lived with us for a while and we're, we see them all the time. Now they're, their sort of palate and the food that they eat is expanding as well. So in a small way, we also impacted my nieces and nephews. So it's funny though, everyone thinks that's their food, but they have regional food. They have very distinct, whether it's soba or okonomiyaki, which is traditionally Kansai, which is where Osaka is, to how they eat sushi in Osaka or Fukuoka is completely different from how they eat sushi in, in Tokyo. The food is literally unbelievable. It is, people are just blown away around how fresh and how healthy it is. And food is, the food is spectacular, but it's not just sushi. There's other stuff. And how did the local communities, both in Hong Kong and Tokyo, treat you as a foreigner? This is a touchy subject. Well, I, no, it's not touchy, but you just want to sort of articulate it the right way. Hong Kong was relatively easy. At that time, there was a ton of foreigners. That was easy. Certainly, they were all Brits, which takes a little bit of getting used to and so forth. But it was relatively easy. Then there is what I would call just sort of westernized, multi-generational Hong Kong Chinese, and they were relatively easy. But the simple fact is I really didn't interact a lot with the true Hong Kong Chinese that have been there for years. It's kind of a weird city. There's Hong Kong Island, which is very international, and that's sort of where all that went on. Across the harbor in the Kowloon side was completely different, right? And I, I actually very rarely wandered out there. Now, Japan is, a, <laughs> is an interesting place. It's amazing. It's amazing how polite they are, and it's amazing how, I'm trying to work on this, outwardly friendly and polite and all those things. The reality, which was always underlying all my experience there, regardless of having already spent 11 and a half years there, I, I was a foreigner. I was gaijin, right? I mean, they didn't open up till Admiral Perry showed up probably, what, 450 years ago to the outside world. They're a very homogenous culture. They probably have some of the lowest immigration rates in the world. It's just a hard culture to understand and integrate with. The real problem is you're always a foreigner, right? And so they weren't, you didn't have a lot of sort of openly <laughs> open disdain for you. There's a certain degree of xenophobia. I'll be quite honest. There's a certain degree of very strong nationalism. And so it was interesting on one hand, very polite, very kind, very warm and welcoming. And then behind it, as you're there for a long time, 
you realize you're just a foreigner, right? And so they doubt your way of thinking. They doubt the way in business, how you approach processes. They think our decisions are very rash versus very analytical. I know folks that lived there for 35 years, right? And they're still a foreigner, right? And with that comes, you know, all the things I just talked about. Some of it is trust. Some of it is they think we lack the capacity to kind of understand their culture and respect their culture. It comes through, unfortunately, many times behind your back. I remember in work, we, you'd have meetings and say to my team, okay, great. We've decided on the direction. We hashed through a couple things and let's go for it. And you'd come back a month and say, hey, how are we on that? And, and they would just kind of go, you know, we were still doing what we agreed not to do because, you know, we think we could have done more analysis or, you know, we really think it's a good thing for us. As a manager or leader, it would drive me bonkers, <laughs> like literally bonkers because you would debate things as you should and you take everything in and ultimately that you say, hey, listen, we're going to go to Y versus X or whatever the case might be. And then you get there a month later and guess what? We're still on Y and not on X. And I think that's a good example of what we were talking about. I think xenophobia is a strong word, but I think this lack of trust in, in, in foreigners, very ethnocentric in terms of, hey, we know what's best for business here. We know what's best for Japan, which that's only natural. I think it's a little more rigid there. And the weird thing about that culture, it's non-confrontational, right? And so you don't really know it's happening until it already happened, or it's almost like a light goes off and you say to yourself, oh, gosh, they don't, they don't, they didn't listen to a word I said, <laughs> you know, you're like, okay, let's try this again. But that's their culture and, and there's good reason behind it. And you just got to learn how to deal with it and learn how to politely try to navigate it. The best example I can give at that is, and you hear this often, Japan doesn't really have an answer. They don't have a word for no, right? But most foreigners don't know that. The word they have is taboon. And taboon, taboon or taboon, whatever you want, taboon means maybe. And so as a foreigner, like a great example is in the work thing again, you would you'd say, hey, no, I think we should really do this. Do you think it's a good idea? And they would say, taboon. And until you're there a while, you're like, oh, this, they think it might be a good idea and we're going to look at it. And the reality is taboo in most cases means no. <laughs> and that, that can be frustrating as hell, right? You're like, okay, this is great. Let's take a look at this. And then someone's like, you know, John, taboo means no. <laughs> so just a little nuance. Sounds like you and your family had really adjusted to living in Japan. What brought that period to an end? That's actually a great question. And this is not all too uncommon. Our kids, frankly, our kids, right? It's interesting. When you spend a lot of your life overseas, it varies by country, but you know, most whatever that time frame is, right? And in Japan, for some reason, it's kind of arbitrary. It's like five years, right? If you've been here five years, chances are you're gonna stay there or in, in Hong Kong less so in Japan, but it came down to our kids. Our kids largely grew up there, had a wonderful experience, but at some point we felt it was important to get them home, get them in a true American education system. We had lived in apartments our whole life, right? And we're very outdoorsy folks and you're able to do that in Japan. My kids are like, hey dad, I want like a yard. <laughs> can we get in a house that has a yard so we can play, run around with our dogs? Frankly, for me, I've moved around my whole life, right? I could have stayed in Japan my entire life, right? And there's always be another layer of that onion to pull off. And it sounds counterintuitive, but the more you go, the harder it is to, to pull off that that layer of the onion and understand more. But for me personally, I just like, I like to experience, I like to travel for one, but I like to look at other cultures. And so other than my kids, I knew that I had to get home for them, but I also knew that I had to get home, if you will, before I go somewhere else. Right. And we actually, Betsy and I had to make a very fundamental decision. Do we want to live an expat life our whole life? 
I could have lived with it all day long, right? But the reality is we also have family at home. And so my parents are getting old at the time. My grandmother died when I was over there, the one I was talking about earlier, and she's probably one of the most influential people in my life. They have cousins, they have aunts and uncles, right? And that's a really important part of someone's upbringing, upbringing, excuse me, and their sense of family and all of those things. And so I think in aggregate, you know, right? You know, it's, it's time to go. And so at the end of the day, it was a relatively fast and easy decision, but those are the things that I think most people go through, particularly in a place like Japan, which is, as I said before, an awesome place to live, but it's, it can be a struggle, right? I love the struggle. A lot of people don't. For me, when I lived abroad and I came back to the U.S., it was like a whole nother wave of culture shock and adjustment. So I was curious for you, you know, now having this lens of Japan, what was it like when you came back to the U.S.? Did you find certain things strange? This is a big one. Work is always a big one and you have to kind of do this re-entry and you go overseas initially and... I, would, I moved firms over there, right? So for me, it was a little different. But even for folks that stay with their firms or their companies, you're kind of out of sight, out of mind, right? And so here you go, you're back to the States, great, back to my office. And, you know, people are kind of like, hey, hey, Santiago, where the hell you been, you know? And so you have to kind of reprove yourself again or sort of reintegrate. In many cases, you get sent overseas, and I know this happened to a lot of people, there's not a spot for you when you come back. And so you have to kind of work that spot. For me, well, for one, I don't know if this is related to Japan. You know, I, I, I have not lived in the suburbs since I was a kid, right? And I've always been around these places where there's lots of excitement. It's 24-7. Whatever you need at 2 in the morning, you walk out and get it. So it's those little everyday things. Just the noise, frankly, in our life in the U.S., right? That's one. The second thing is crime. Like we are just inundated in this country with news that really folks on the negative. But the reality is it's part of our life. Japan had effectively zero crime. We had more shootings in Chicago in the last week than Japan has had in the last decade. No doubt in my mind. But it's not just that. There's just the petty stuff. Like people messing around with your car or people trying to get into your house or on the streets running in folks that some may not be the most friendly people in the world. But I tell people when you remove all the stuff, we're just inundated with this country. You don't have to worry about your family safety. You don't have to worry about petty stuff and nuance that we experience every day. I can't tell you how much it frees up your mind to do other things. And you're not, in your personal life, inundated with this from the news and the media. And in your sort of day-to-day life, it is pleasant. And then for a family, when you know that their safety is, which is obviously paramount, is there's really very little risk of anything happening to your kids. I mean, my kids... My commute was 10 minutes. My kid's commute was 40 minutes outside the city, right? And I never worried. I never worried, oh gosh, am I going to have to drive out there and something's going to happen. And that, at least for me, it just freed up my mind so much free and just removed something that I think affects all parents is, hey, are my kid's going to be all right when they walk out the door every day. Never had that issue, ever. I want to talk a little bit about cultural identity. I really like what you said about the onion, right? And how the more you're there, the more you like to peel the layers off of the culture and also how almost that culture becomes layers of an onion onto yourself. So I'm just wondering when you come back to the United States, do you feel somewhat Japanese now? No, I don't think I feel Japanese, but I certainly carry with me a lot of things in Japan that I really love. Certainly the Eastern sense of spirituality, I never was particularly spiritual, but Zen Buddhism is very real and how do you live your life in a meaningful way. I think the respect for people around you and their personal space and this protocol of politeness, I, I still try 
to bring in my life. A funny one is in Japan, you don't cross a crosswalk if it says don't walk. So if you're coming home from a restaurant or whatever, a business meeting at one in the morning, when you're walking home, you get there, there's not a car within 20 blocks in any direction and just wait, right? And we find ourselves still doing that, right? And we'll be with folks and like, hey, what are you doing, man? There's no cars within sight, or there's a car like going 80 miles an hour, three blocks away and people are, all right, I'm out there. But in all seriousness, listen, I think their cleanliness, their kind of Zen Buddhist and Shinto diety-based spirituality is something I still carry with me. I always was an outdoors person, but the love of nature and getting out and really making sure that that's a big integrated part of your day is something I still continue to try to pursue. We wish we could still eat the same way. It's really, it's really hard here, right? And we're getting better at it. But when you eat well and you're spending a lot of time outside and no one's messing with you and you really appreciate sort of the, this, this Zen sort of sense of peacefulness and making things comfortable, your life turns out pretty well, right? And then I think when you remove that stuff from your life, it, it's, it's a challenge. When I lived in Germany, I noticed that when you come to a crosswalk, and the little man is red, indicating that you're not allowed to cross. You don't cross the street, even if there's no cars cr coming. So uh, apparently that's uh, very similar in Japan. It's hilarious. We used to host, we'd be hosting people out of town, folks in business or whatever. Friends would come over. Like, what the heck are you doing? There's not a car. And it's just that it's like one of those little anecdotes that just captures a lot about respect for others, respect for the rule of law, respect for other people, and also just, hey, what are you in a hurry for, guys? Like, just wait, you know? <laughs> and that is, it's, it's a small anecdote, which I think captures a lot about that place. The other thing there is family is of the utmost importance, right? I think everyone could benefit from that sort of view of the world where your family is everything and sort of everything else is kind of chatter or secondary to make that family life as best you can. Tell me a little bit about work-life balance in Japan. Well, I mean, one of the other things about Japan is they are complete workaholics, right? You work, you know, 18 hours a day. It's not uncommon to, to work on weekends and certainly in Hong Kong, I was doing the same thing. But you do it because you have to earn the respect uh, of the local folks and you gotta let them know that you're legit. But it was, you know, well, maybe it's just getting old, right? But I didn't wanna work that much anymore. I wanted to spend time with my family. I wanted to spend time pursuing my other interests and hobbies and that was a big part of it. Nature was great. We spent a lot of time on the beach. My kids learned how to surf. We skied 30 days a year, usually every year. And so we had that part of our life, which was great from a family perspective. But I have some other hobbies and interests that frankly were just put on hold. Purely a function of space. Like you can't, there's nowhere to build a wood shop. I can't go to a local guy and say, hey, I'd love to apprentice with you because he doesn't speak your language, right? And so... I really wanted to get back into some of those things. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the recent pivots that you've made in your professional career. And I'm really curious how your time in Japan may have influenced your current course. So I got tired of that corporate life. Like it roasted me, right? Like it just roasted me and I wanted to do those other things. And so it was, well, no names. But when I came back, I realized that I felt like the American work environment really had gotten pretty similar, right? 24-7, you always have to be on. As a partner in a firm, it just was on and on and on and on. And again, I just got tired of it. And so now I have two businesses and one of them is a, is a passion, a natural sunscreen business that's all natural based. Frankly, that, believe it or not, started in Japan. We used to spend a lot of time on the beach and 
She's using suntan lotion and sunscreen. And that's when I really started looking at, hey, what's in this stuff? And started doing a lot of research and felt I could do a better thing, make a better sunscreen. And so that was one. And then the other thing is a cannabis analytic testing laboratory, which was a new industry and certainly a growing industry. And so I felt like it was a great opportunity for me in my lifetime, other than .com, right, to get into an industry that is growing a lot. As a strategist, you look at that market and you see a market growing, you see supply outpacing demand, You it's a vice, which typically does very well. So from a business standpoint, I thought it was one of those opportunities that, that I thought was worth taking a look at. The other thing is I dictate where I spend my time. And I think dictating where you spend your time is a very different from your work life, regardless of your level, right? And uh, I was ready to do that for sure. On the sunscreen thing, what prompted you to look at the ingredients? Were you on the beach one day and just kind of reading the label? Did, did you develop a rash or something? No, no, it's interesting. And then there's something that actually accelerated it, which I'll talk about. But it was just, we're using this stuff all the time. We're skiing, we're using it on the beach. We've always been outdoor people. And you see some of it in the press. Hey, there's bad stuff in it and you shouldn't be using this and it causes cancer and so forth. But like most people, they don't know what that means and nor will, nor will they take the time to do it. And so I, I just started really doing a lot of deep research on the ingredients and what we're actually using in those things. And you'll find very quickly that a lot of what you hear, but you don't understand, yeah, there's some pretty bad stuff in there. Do like natural remedies? And I thought there'd be a better way to do it. The second impetus to really go after it was once I came back here, I had done some work in chemicals. It was never my vertical or my specialty, but having sort of run the office and ostensibly looking at a lot of multinationals. I started working in chemicals, came back to the States, classic consulting stuff. Hey, you ever, you ever worked in chemicals? Yeah. I've done a couple of projects. All right. You're building the chemical just here in the Midwest. But in all seriousness, I had a great opportunity to work in one of the biggest chemical deals ever, frankly, and it was incredible learning, but at the same time, Got to be careful. It exposed me to some of the really bad things about that industry, some of the materials that it, they have produced. And I think this is all becoming well known. And frankly, for the first time in my career, the ethics really came into play, right? And so I said, listen, I, I got to get out of this. I can't stay in this industry in, in a good conscience and support it. And then there was a, the other one was, you know what? Davey sometimes like, likes going after Goliath. And of course, I'm not going to take down a bunch of chemical companies. But the reality is the three, four largest sunscreen companies in the world that account for almost 60% of the world's sunscreen are essentially chemical companies. So you have folks that are making sunscreen that you lather on your kids. And then you have other, and at the same token, they're making paint removers and paint and all this stuff that PVC pipe, you name it, that's really bad. And so in this, whatever little way I can to, to at least remove that from the sunscreen industry. And then that little piece of me that, that likes, likes a good fight or likes to prove people wrong. I said, well, let's go for it. So that's what we're doing. And how much of this perspective do you think came from your experiences of living abroad? Japan in particular, very natural, very much, although they do use a lot of chemicals, but this notion of being natural, this notion, they're very safe. They're a very safe society. They're very analytical and sort of how they look and how they, what they put on their body, what they put in their body. And I think to some degree that carried forward with me. Certainly it, it happens a lot more when you have kids, but I, I think if Japan had any influence in that was really just sort of living a natural, healthy lifestyle, respecting nature, all sorts of things like that. One thing that we haven't talked about yet is music. Is there any music in particular from either Hong Kong or Tokyo 
that you miss or takes you back to that time? When I lived in Hong Kong, it was a really big EDM scene. Asia, EDM is is a really big part of their life, right? And so much to my kid's chagrin, I'm a, <laughs> I still love EDM. And then funny enough, I used to go to this little, little teeny bar on the third floor of this nondescript building that I walked home from with, and it was called Banana Fish. And so the first time we walked by, we're like, Banana Fish, what the hell is a Banana Fish? And we went up there. It was a, it was a one room bar. I mean, literally like five stools. His name was Kuba and he, which means bear. And he was, it was his place. He, I think he slept there. But I would go in there late at night because I found out he was a musician and it was really, really cool. I also loved Pink Floyd on the other spectrum from EDM. He loved Pink Floyd. He loved old American music and also some really sort of esoteric stuff. Even though he spoke very little English and I spoke very little Japanese, we used to spend a lot of time at night listening to music. He really introduced me to some Japanese folk music. It's very similar to U.S. folk music, a lot of string instruments, a sort of slower songs. But in reality, it was obviously it was vastly different, but it, I was struck by the similarity to U.S. sort of country music, which frankly, I wasn't a huge fan for, right? It, you could have been listening to Joni Mitchell, right? But it was Japanese. And so, yeah. And it's funny, keep forgetting the name, but anyway, I'll remember it. But I listened to it from time to time. I would go there, I could be on the way home, it'd be 10.30, and I'd say, oh, I'm going to go stop in Cuba and listen to whatever, some Tangerine Dream or whatever the heck he was listening to that night. And then I'd get home at like 1.30, all sort of bloodshot eye, and Betsy said, what the hell, what are you doing? And uh, oh, I'm down with Cuba, Nana Fish, just listening to music. And she knew that I wasn't getting into too much trouble, but also it was like this little, this little joy in life I used to love. And that's probably one of the first places I'll go back to when I get back there, for sure. During our conversation, I was curious about the traditional Japanese music, and I recalled an instrument that could be either struck or plucked. John couldn't remember the name of the instrument, so after our recording, I looked it up and it was a koto, K-O-T-O. I played some koto music during the intro. There's like four... There's like four national sort of cultural things. And one is calligraphy. The other one's ikaburo, which is flower arrangements. The other one is tea ceremony. And the fourth one is that instrument. So I should know, but you pluck it and you also tap it. Not a lot of people play it anymore, except geisha. So as part of the geisha's development from Ramako into like a full-blown geisha is they have to master all of these sort of traditional cultural things. They're also into drums. They're really into drums. So then how does EDM play into all of this? It's funny. I, I don't remember words and songs a lot, except for Pink Floyd and Psychedelic Furs and some other. I always listen to music. I took piano when I was younger and and so that's why actually also I started gravitating towards EDM because it's really about music and beats and how you bring those things together versus, you know, words. Changing gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you, if you had a time machine and you were able to go back in time and speak with an earlier version of yourself, what would you tell him and at what age? Man, you're really, you're really dinging these things. I would tell him to go see the world, which I end up doing. And there's a hell of a lot out there. Go out there and see as much as you can, but also be a good example and advocate for what you are, which is American, right? And you, you can't escape it. Unfortunately, in a lot of cultures, Americans don't really have the great reputation. We're glorified for independence and the wonderful land of opportunity, but they sometimes think we're very brash or impolite or other things. And even to this day, I still would have heeded that advice. You're an ambassador for this culture. I was very sensitive to that. And, and so part of it would also have been, hey, listen, always be respectful for foreign cultures. They're no different from you. Excuse me. They're very different from you, but at their core, they want the same things, right? And I think that's a good lesson. We've taught our kids that, right? So I've had that conversation with the new versions of me. And thankfully, you know, it's held true. I hopefully did a good job of it, right? And if measurement of that 
that whatever you told me when I was a little kid, great question. I guess if a measure of success is my kids, I feel pretty good. That's, that's awesome. So what else, what else, given the context of this conversation, would you like to share with the audience? Well, I tell you, I was thinking about this, right? And one of the first things I said is, why the hell does Santiago <laughs> want to talk to me, right? My journey is not like probably a lot of folks you talk about escaping, trying to get political asylum, right? Trying to better their lives, capture this thing called the American dream and do better, do better for yourself and your family. So I felt a little weird that you were asking me to do this, particularly because some of the folks you spoke to, right? But then I thought about it. And again, I know my experience, all of our experiences are a little unique, but I can't, I cannot minimize the impact of my grandmother, right? And just imagining in 1907, getting on a boat four stories down with no portholes, bouncing around and saying, what the hell, what's going on, right? But that has resonated with me my entire life, right? I saw how a couple things, well, A, that's a challenging journey, but she was an absolute, she was maniacal about defending the U.S. and the wonderful opportunities it's given her and the changes to her life. And, and she always appreciated that. And she put that, she put that on me, right? Luckily, it held. The funniest thing is, I have two sisters and a brother, nothing, like literally no interest at all in going overseas. No way, like never. My brother is the only person that visited me when I was overseas. And it's funny, he was a forester in the middle of the Sierra Nevada, very accomplished in his field. He lived in the mountains of California for years. And his wife called me because she knew we were repatriating. And she said, I can't believe this. Like, you've been over there half your life, half the time I've known you, and we've never shown up, right? And so uh, I said, well, the offer has been here since 97. It's now 20 years later or 21 years later. It's still there. But the reason I tell I'm talking about this is... I had no idea how they were going to react. You know, literally, they, like, yeah, it's a pretty freaky place. I've been there, even with people you know. But it was, it was amazing. I have to tell you, because my wife, Betsy, said the same thing. Like, what the heck's going to happen? My brother, to this day, says that was one of the most incredible trips of his life and learning experiences of his life because he was nervous. He, he had no idea about Asia, never had an interest. It's incredibly different. And it was amazing. He still, to this day, this is, gosh, going on, whatever, almost eight years. It changed his perspective so much. They still talk to me about it. They talk to me about the food or remember that temple. And the coolest thing is it's my brother is probably seven years older than me. Vastly different lives, vastly different lifestyles, whatever. It brought us closer than we've ever been. We really, for the first time, understood each other. I think more for him, like he never knew, like, what the hell does he do? I don't think he knew my job. He, he like, I'm just living overseas. Where the hell does he live? But we really, for the first time, really understood each other. And I actually appreciated him so much more. Like He's a forester, but he's also apparently in the birdwatching community, a pretty famous guy. He's a very well-known birdwatcher. And he had the time of his life. He saw, whatever, 75 new lifers. There's like a Tinder for birdwatchers. So he, he like found some guy who also happened to be a bigwig in Japanese bird watching, and he was running off in the marshlands of Chiba, which is this peninsula on the other side of Tokyo Bay. And he was like, he was ecstatic because here's a Japanese guy he could barely communicate with, although he spoke some English. And he was just like him with binoculars and field lenses and trudging through marshes. And he was like, wow, the guy... He was awesome, but he was just like me. He has the same passions. He does the same stuff. His wife's are probably like, what the hell are they doing? Like, why is he going away all the time? And so anyway, that, that is, 
That was one of the best experiences for me relative to Japan. And I kind of talked about it before, but I am so grateful that I was able to give that opportunity to my kids, right? I think their perspective on life, I think their appreciation for diversity, whether that's people from different countries or some of our own issues we have here with terms of diversity and people accepting that. It's proud as a father to be able to look at them and know that they look at the world broadly and not sort of this privileged life they've had and, and traveling around their acceptance of people. Is there anything else you want to add to the conversation? You just hit upon one, which I wanted to sort of end with. There is fear. There is trepidation, right? Like you just like, what the hell is going on? But you overcome it, right? You have to figure it out. There, there's no, you know, you can't sit there and go, I, I I don't know how to order a hamburger. You'll figure out how to order a hamburger, right? People got to get out, have the realization that you just said, and my brother realized, hey, they're just like me. They have the same needs. We need to understand them versus saying, hey, it's different. Oh, they're different. They're not like me, or I should be fearful of them, or they're coming for my job, or whatever the case might be. I really wish more people, frankly, in this country, and vice versa, people have those perceptions of us. Just get out and see it, right? Well, John, I just wanted to thank you. I'm really delighted that you took the time to share your story. Of course, of course. How do you say goodbye in Japanese? Des, or you'd say shitsureshimasu. Des, this is another good little tidbit on Japan. So when you, first of all, if your boss didn't leave, you don't leave. So I would be sitting there, I'd hire a guy the day before, or two days ago is his first day and I'd be working late and I'd come in and say, Santiago, what the hell are you still doing here? You have no work. You just came here two days ago. The reason I tell you that, the goodbye in the office, like when you're leaving your colleagues is Oscari Samades and it says, I'm sorry to be leaving you. You must be working. You know, the translation's pretty loose, but you know, I'm sorry to be leaving you. Uh, you must be working very hard or something like that. And uh, it's a big part of their culture because work is... You know, other than your family work is what you do and how you identify yourself. So Oscari Samades or a little less is, is probably a little more colloquial. I think the story that John told about his brother kind of addresses John's question to me as to why I wanted him to share his story in the show. I feel like our experiences are different, but also the same, if that makes sense. Many people go through some pretty extreme transformations, but they take different shapes. What John's brother went through was pretty extreme for him. I like how that shared experience also brought them closer together. And even though John's story wasn't filled with fleeing from a dictatorship, political persecution, etc., it does demonstrate how situations in our lives, sometimes gently, sometimes not so gently, can force us way outside our comfort zones. Sometimes we have someone like John's grandmother in our lives who influence our desire to travel or even to settle in a foreign land. Sometimes our jobs propel us into the unknown. Regardless of the reason, everyone's immigrant journey is unique and offers a tremendous potential for growth and learning. I'm ending this episode with some Japanese-inspired EDM music from Gustavo Pereira. The song is called Cyber Geisha, Source Epitome Music. To learn more about this show, visit www.immigrantsjourneys.fm. <laughs>